Hey, welcome! Thanks for tuning in! This is There's Something About Artbeats, a podcast where I discuss with experts and industry leaders about the many sides of the artbeats industry. I'm your host, Federico Biancullo. I am an artbeats artist, founder of The Big Picture, blogger and content creator in the field of architectural representation. I'm on a journey to learn more on all things about artbeats, art direction, business, technology, you name it. And I would like you to be a part of this journey as well. Through these conversations, my hope is to bring light to not so obvious topics connected to our industry and help you grow as a professional, as an artist, and why not, as a human being as well. So please join me. Without further ado, let's jump into this episode of There's Something About Artbeats. Hey people, welcome once again to There's Something About Arby's. I hope you're all doing great. So, we have reached the end of season one of the podcast. It's been a great journey so far. I've learned a lot from my guests and I hope you also got something useful out of these conversations. Now, reaching the end of the season doesn't mean that I'm going anywhere. As some of you may know, this podcast is a little side gig of mine that I do just for the sake of learning new stuff, meeting interesting people and a better understanding how our industry works. This is something that I do with literally zero expectations or grand scheme behind, as my main activities remain content creation and, of course, image making. In addition to that, 2022 will probably bring up a lot of new projects that will keep me very busy. But since I like being consistent in what I do, I'll keep up with the monthly podcast episodes. So I'll be back in full force from February 2022. It's just a time needed to gather my energies and come up with a lineup of great guests and topics. Okay. That's out of the way. Today's episode, as you may have already seen, doesn't follow the progressive numbering. This is indeed not episode 13, but it's a, actually a bonus episode that I conceived with my friend Georgi Leshtarsky from the Creative Insider podcast. In fact, Georgi is going to co-host this episode and mirror it on his podcast. And by the way, make sure you check out on his series of interviews with creatives from the world of architecture, artists and design. At the moment of recording this episode is at over 80 interviews, that's incredible. And I'm pretty sure you'll also recognize some familiar faces among his guests. Now, as for this episode, well, you've probably already guessed it by now, this time I'll be the guest of my own podcast. So, what are we going to talk about? In August 2021, I hopped on the virtual stage of D2 conferences where I delivered a talk on the topic of mental health in our industry. This is something that involves me directly as I suffer from burnout and depression connected to the work that I do. However, mental ill-being issues are more common than we want to tell ourselves in our industry. So I'm trying to actively spread awareness on the topic through my experience. In today's episode, I delve a bit deeper in my experience with burnout and depression on how I realized that I was going through a difficult time in my life and why things were like that. I describe what were the manifestations of this ill-being and how perfectionism and social media played into that. Finally, I also talk about how I fought back and about what I've learned in the process. Uh, just a final word for you all, always saying in this episode is not meant to be medical advice. Our experiences will be most likely different and if you're going through a hard time in your life, I encourage you to consult a doctor and plan the best course of action for you. But if you feel like reaching out and sharing your experience, just write me at podcast at bigpicturevisual.com. I'm always happy when people talk openly about mental health in our field because that's basically the only way we have to change things in a tangible way. And I think that's all for me. So I leave you to my conversation with Georgie. Enjoy. Hello, Federico. How are you? Hey, Georgie. <laughs> How are you? Nice to talk to you again after it's been... Actually, I'm now editing my podcast episodes for YouTube and uh, recently I uploaded the one with you and it was more than a year ago since we talked audio format the last time. Probably this is the first time on your podcast that you have a, a returning guest, I think. <laughs> so yes, this is yes. a precedent for you as well. But this is kind of a special episode. This episode is going to air both on The Creative Insider and There's Something About Arquist. Briefly, this is going to be the closing episode of season one of There's Something About Arcfist. You don't have a season, so this is kind of a Christmas special. I don't know. 
<laughs> How would you say that? It's a bonus episode for the listeners of the Creative Insider because we are done for this season with guests. Uh, I wanted to stop the podcast for the holidays exactly for the topic which we are going to talk today. And I was thinking, okay, I want to give my community, my listeners a little bit of break of new content so that they can have a little bit of time during the, the holiday season. And I guess if they really want to listen to the podcast, there are enough episodes, they for sure have missed some. And then we chat on Instagram and then you came up with this great idea. And I thought this is so awesome to have this special episode and where we will be talking a little bit of your personal experience with overwork and burnout, which is a very common a problem, I think, uh, in your case, especially in Argvis, but it's a problem in uh, architecture, where I'm, the field I'm working uh, in. And uh, for what I've heard from multiple creatives, uh, they've been on my podcast, I think it's a common problem for every creative field. Yeah, indeed. Well, this is connecting mostly to Argvis and to architecture, but as you said, it's, it's broadly extendable to all creative fields. This is very present in creative profession in general. We will be focused mostly on Argvis and architecture. Of course, there are some parallels, there's some links between the two professions, there's some peculiarities that I'd like to highlight. But most of the things we're going to say, we're going to talk about in this episode, uh, you can translate them into other fields, into other creative fields. Yes. And uh, lately you've been um, on the D2 talks, which are uh, organized by one of our friends, among others, Fabio Palvelli. He's a common friend. Uh, he has been on your podcast, on my podcast, and um, um, he and his partners organized the biggest uh, events related to ArcVis. And you have hold a little lecture there about your experience with burnout. I got the um, possibility to check it on YouTube. We can add uh, some links in the episode notes from both of our podcasts so the listeners can go check the lecture. But there you shared something that, uh, for example, I didn't know about you. And I guess that people didn't know that about your personal life. So you you have had a, a, a burnout um, while transitioning from employed to um, self-employed, actually in Italy, starting your own company. So I've heard of people that have had a burnout. What are, in your case, what were the initial symptoms, the initial, how did you started being aware that you're into a, loophole that it's turning into a burnout? That's a good question. This is something that you don't realize at the beginning because you're so sucked in into your work, into your stuff, that it is difficult to actualize what's happening to you. Uh, I want to go a step back. And first of all, of course, I want to thank Fabio and Jason from the D2 for having had me on the D2 stage, although virtually, this is a bit sad, I have to say, but I'm still, I'm very grateful about the opportunity that they gave me. And realizing that you went through burnout it's particularly difficult and you need someone that is close to you to make you aware of that in my case i can say that the first real impact was on my my relationship with my partner we had a lot of arguments actually on uh, on me being focused 100% on work even in our personal time it was like work was all the time present between us you know like a third person in our relationship. And that was probably the biggest symptom of, of, of a bad pattern in my relationship with work. Although there has been, well, it's, it's something that you realize once you get educated, once you uh, talk to people about that. So it, it's a difficult question to answer indeed, but if I were to check, to go back and see in retrospective what was happening, I was really hungry to get everything that I could. I was just getting started my own business. It actually was the first year and a half it was like that. And I was hungry to get all the work that I could to the point that I, I would just accept unreasonable requests without even thinking about the feasibility of these requests. And this was probably the most important thing and the most evident thing about an impending burnout. But there's a, there's a lot of stages to burnout. So it's kind of something that progresses in time and develops constantly. I'm curious to understand how did you get to this point? Because from the first conversation I had with you on the podcast, I, I noticed that you are very 
uh, passionate about your work, very motivated, very quality oriented. You want to achieve great quality in everything you do because as I told you, I've been following your blog uh, since I was a student and I still as a professional, I go check for some tips and it's so well done. And uh, also in our conversation in the merge that you had the opportunity to go to work for Björk Ingels Group, which is one of the uh, best architectural office in the world currently uh, at a very, very high level in New York. And then you had the awareness to say no, that's not for me. I want to do something else. I want to go back to Italy. I want to start my own company. And then once you've started your own company, what was the motivation for you to accept these crazy deadlines, to accept this old work? Was it for money? Was it to create a brand, a name? You know, everything in life that we do has... I also try to say that in, in my podcast always is that we're not only professional creatives, we're not architects or archivists, artists. This is our passion and our profession, but we do it in order to get money to do other stuff like spending time with our friends, family, go on holiday. So what was the motivation for you to decline the important side of your private life and go for insane work? For this one, I have a kind of an easy answer that could be summarized with just one word, which is self-expectations. I am just like that. It's something that I discovered through a long cycle of therapy, which I'm still undergoing. I have no problem admitting that I've, I've been through therapy. I've been through depression as well. Now it's much better. Honestly, when we had our first conversation, it was not the best time in life for me. But if I were to just mention one reason for all this it was self-expectations. So you see, for various things happened in my life, in my you know, family, how I was raised, I've been led to be a very, a person with high expectations of myself, not, not on others, mind you, because having expectations on other people is something, but having expectations on yourself is another kind of worms. I was expecting of myself to be, you know, this industry leader, to be this person with a, with a really great reputation and do the best stuff for the best clients ever. This has clashed with what I, what I am. I have some limits as a person. For example, I realized that I'm not that great at, I can communicate pretty well with a client, but I cannot establish initial relationship with a client. This is something that is very hard for me. And it's something that I hadn't figured out yet. I still, still haven't figured out yet. Uh, at the time when I was going through all this, I was not accepting that, you know, I was not accepting that I'm not good at certain things that I needed to do this job. And this kind of caused me a lot of stress and burnout because I was trying to overcompensate my lack of some skills probably with overwork. You know, there's something else here. Probably, you know, I never actually hired people. So the big picture is still just me. I had, yes, yes, I had collaborations in the past, but it is basically just me relying on someone else. And this is something that I realized in time that I have some problems in delegating. I have some problems in uh, building relationship with other people to build a team. And there's something that I lack. And at the time, I didn't realize this. And this caused me a lot of stress because I was comparing myself to others. People building a team out of nowhere, building a client base out of nowhere. And I was like, what am I doing wrong? Why am I like this? And this caused me a lot of mental health issues and led me to burnout and then depression. And then through therapy, I realized that there's nothing bad inherently in having limits to what are you. And there's people that can actually compensate who you are, that can compensate your, your lack of skills. They can be a support to your activities. They, they can integrate what you do. So this is one of the main reasons. I had this huge bar set up for myself, which was not realistic if done alone. Yeah. So like you're saying, it's that what I understand from what you're saying is that for you personally, the problem was that uh, once you had the opportunity to start your own archivist business, you had these extreme expectations on yourself. And of course, as somebody very ambitious uh, as you seem to be, not as a negative or positive thing, it's just the way you are. Because as I said, throughout all the activities that you do, and I can see online for what is the result of them, Everything is so sleek, so polished, so perfect. And in the meanwhile, you are a one-man show, as you said, because currently you're alone. Uh, this was a push for you 
to maybe compete with others from the industry that maybe are a team. For example, this is something that happens very often while you're an architecture student because you're doing your project, but your references are project of architectural offices that have been made by teams of uh, multiple people with uh, way more skills than what you know is uh, as a student. And then you end up working. I, I remember when I was a student, sometimes I wouldn't sleep for five days in a row just to achieve this uh, level of quality. Uh, but is there something specific in the archivist industry that is also kind of pushing you in that direction? Because I am from the other side of the industry. I'm usually on the side of the client. So we use it to delegate what we don't want to do in in-house. Uh, we just call an office and give them the models and tell them do nice images. And usually it's also last moment because our project time is also on the last moment. We also work until the last moment. And also I'm considering you mentioned the, the other Arcvis offices. And in the meanwhile, this is on a global scale. I have the feeling that the whole industry is trying to lower down the price also from third world countries like China or India or wherever. And, and they lower down the prices of the images and an architect says, why you want so much money? So are these all the factors of Arcvis that push people towards burnout or it was also your personal perfectionism? Money is a factor that I, I never took into consideration, mainly just because I, since the outset, since the beginning, I placed myself in, on, a, on a higher tier of my service. So I never, never considered that I should lower down my prices or compete with lower prices. I was just on another tier. That was the idea that I had of me. Yeah, that might be self-expectations. That might be a high image of myself, but that's how I wanted to set up my work and my brand. So higher tier images, higher end images. So let's take money out for a second. There's something else here, um, which is the link between architecture and ArcVis. We both know how it works. You just said how it works in the in the architecture university. You're just thrown there and they just tell you that in order to achieve a good project, you have to work yourself to the bone. Uh, you have to pull all-nighters because that's what people do in the industry. There's some schools that actually foster this kind of behavior. And there's something really disruptive, not just for Arcvis. Of course, Arcvis is, is a byproduct of architecture in this sense, but for architects, when architects get out of university, they have already this mindset of working themselves to the bone, pool of nighters, and this kind of damages the profession altogether. As for Arcvis, well, not all architecture offices are like that, of course, I'm not saying that, but there's definitely architecture offices that work like that, even very big ones that work like that. And when you as an Arcvis artist or as an Arcvis company, you go to those companies, you will be treated the same way. These companies will expect the same amount of time and pressure and work from you uh, with also unrealistic expectations. So when you get into Arcvis, you have also to understand who are you talking to and understand that if you were going to talk to certain kind of offices, you're going to go on the same pace. You're going to, to follow the same rhythm that these offices follow. So that's very important, especially when you work with, uh, with star architects on competitions and you end up doing these crazy hours because that's that's how it works. And it's really difficult to get out of this rut if you don't build another pool of clients that are more calm and more less intrusive and less hasty. Uh, now, there's something else that is really important that you were also mentioning about that is that usually archivist artists are very rarely seen as consultants in a project. Archivist firms that are consulting in an architectural project are really unique. There's not many of them, although we, we tell ourselves all the time that we should consult our clients. It seldomly happens, actually. Uh, it's really difficult to place yourself as a consultant. And most of the time, you're seen as work for hire, as a product provider rather than a service provider. Um, this is really stressful and it's, uh, it's really frustrating because sometimes, even if you fight so hard to place yourself as a consultant, uh, even if you have a long-standing experience in the field, sometimes this experience is being dismissed, the client overrides your creative vision. Uh, but it's not just like that. It's also that more often than not, you're just the end part of a long process. And the pressure is immense because you have to meet a specific deadline. 
even though maybe you don't have enough time, you've been not involved in the process. And this is a big factor of stress in what we do. So this is linked to the industry. And these are things that are really hard to fight because this is how the industry works at the moment. So of course, there's a lot of clients that are great to work with. I'm moving towards more respectful clients, clients that respect your time, respect the time that is needed to build a good image, that respect your expertise. Um, and I'm trying to steer away slowly from clients that are too hasty in the way they work, that they work placing upon you a lot of pressure. It's also a matter of choosing who you want to be and who you work to work with. This is a good point. And while you were telling this story, I was trying to, you know, think about what you're saying and apply it to my case because I've had you on the podcast and we've talked about your background and before becoming an archivist artist uh, or the way you became an archivist artist was through working for really, really high-end uh, offices uh, in Germany, in the Netherlands, in Denmark. And if I'm not wrong, you were working on the projects uh, in the earlier phases, in the earlier stages, where it's more of the competition more generating the ideas and then giving all the work in the latest moment so that you can hand in on time the competition. Then you moved to ArcVis, which is usually used in those situations, whether uh, architects outsource the images for the competitions or for real estate, which I don't know if you have work on. And I worked in that phase of the projects when I was straight out of university, I still an intern. And now I work uh, in uh, phases where we take projects which are already acquired as a project and we make them buildable. So I work in more the executive stages. And there, there you learn something that you don't learn anywhere else, as you said before, that you don't work to make it perfect, but you work for what you paid for. So you have clear stop stoppages from from for example from a project managers he often says we don't do that and we don't do it for example we don't do a good image for that stage is because the client didn't pay for it so we say okay now he's gonna get a screenshot from the model instead of a rendering or something like that and this is something that uh, was like a light bulb for me because as you said your whole career if you keep staying on this uh, earlier stage or university where you really need to present something high-end and perfect you work relentlessly and you pull in all these all-nighters and and i've learned the other side which is okay you work for what you paid for so if you're not paid for it, you just say i'm not gonna do it and the client knows that and do you think this also through your background and through your career also you have stayed into this idea of achieving perfection always or is it also your personal character that you cannot live with an image that's not perfect because you have seen some imperfection and maybe there is no time to do it or no reasonable time to do it but you still stay there and you finish it and make it the way you really need to to be honest i've never been the all-nighter kind of guy i've never pulled a single all-nighter I much prefer working a few hours in the weekend or working from 5 a.m. in the morning rather than pulling all-nighters. That's it. To go back to the perfectionism issue, this is something that is really common to creative people. Probably you can relate to that, both architects, well, artists, artists, but even graphic designers, UX designers, web designers. We, we could just work on our projects until it's perfect, so to say. But the thing is that a perfect project doesn't exist anywhere. It's just an idea, you know, it's just in our ideal world. And this is something that we have to deal with if we don't want to fall into the trap of burnout. Uh, it is how I made, yes. I, I really pride myself for the, the details of what I do, both in content creation, in image creation. It's something that I could just get lost into, into my images. I just spend a lot of time doing details that nobody will ever notice, honestly. But being so obsessed with that is really dangerous because it can definitely lead to excessive stress. And also because, you know, as creatives, we tend to identify ourselves with what we do, with our work. So our work has to be a reflection of what we are. That's why we spend so much time on our, on our, on our work, because it's a, it's a mirror of self-esteem of our high standards. And uh, we have a lot of problems in coming, coming down to terms with the quality of our work that could be, you know, fluctuate. It's not always constant, but the truth is that no project is going to be perfect. But most importantly, 
no projects will reach the same quality standard that you set up for yourself because there's so many reasons that project could not reach that standard. Even external reasons, that's not just the creative. Most of the time it's about external factors, you know, clients won't be happy with their work because they have a particular taste, because they want to impose their own art direction. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of factors that play into that. So we should not stigmatize ourselves because our work is not perfect, it's not good enough. We should, you know, try to just get a step back and analyze the situation uh, with a clear mind. That that's the thing that works the best in trying to understand why things are not perfect and as we want them. But it's really helpful to, to keep your mental health in check because otherwise you get sucked into this idea of doing excellent work and perfect work that is never going to happen in reality. From what you said, which makes total sense, I, I now again analyze it a little bit through my, my perspective. And I think that I've been lucky that I've been working with uh, people that are more experienced than me. So I've seen that they've gone through so many difficulties that uh, at some point they really can let go imperfection in the projects. And as I said, in the phases of architectural projects I work in, uh, there are so many other external factors that can modify the project or can ruin your idea of the project. In your case, it's just your client. Yeah, think about the kind of relationship that you manage to establish with a client. That influences a lot of projects. If you manage to establish a good communication flow, a good relationship with your client, chances are that you're going to enjoy the process. Otherwise, on the contrary, the project is probably going to suck and you're going to hate that. And if you're like me, you will hate yourself for doing bad work. That's the thing. And also deadlines of work, the kind of workflow that maybe doesn't reflect the needs of clients. There's a lot of factors, but it's not just external. It's also internal factors because you have to consider how you're feeling in that moment. You know, energy levels, health, uh, mood. These things have a great influence when you're working. And it's something that you cannot abstract from. Absolutely not. But to go through a little bit through your burnout experience. So in the D2 conference talk, you explain how the big picture started after you left. I don't know, you were in the Netherlands or Denmark. I, I don't remember. Yeah, the Netherlands, yeah. In the Netherlands and you were about to go to a holiday with your girlfriend and then you had to cancel the holiday. <laughs> yeah. Which for me already there, I was like, uh, I want to meet uh, your girlfriend because she's really, really <laughs> accepting uh, such a thing. Um, and then that itself was showing how, what a highly motivated person you were. And also because of course, in that period of time, I could understand it more because you were right starting a new business and probably it was really crucial to bring on some work so that you can start build a portfolio and build mm. a, a client base. And after how long time into being a solopreneur, into being the big picture, you started having um, these burnout symptoms and how did you get aware and what did you undertook to fight back? Uh, as I was mentioning at the beginning of our conversation, I had problems in realizing that. And the way that I was into my relationship, that was the main alarm bell. And there's a lot of things that I understood after after going to therapy. So that's how I understood the things that, that were happening to me. Uh, I was not aware at the time. On the D2 stage, I talk about burnout extensively. I also mentioned that burnout, well, according to who you're talking to, burnout is divided in 12 stages. When I went through these 12 stages for my research, I realized that I was going through that. Luckily, I didn't have any physical symptoms of burnout. But no, actually, now that I think about it, I had, but not while working at the big picture. Uh, you know, I work as an artist, artist for a company in the Netherlands in 2017. And I have to say it was a, I, I'll be honest with you, it was not a good experience. The, the person leading the company was great at talking to clients, but a terrible manager. He let a lot of people go away due to, you know, because it was overworking people to the bone. He didn't have any clue of how to manage his own team. And that's the reason I also left very early that company. But in that time, I started developing uh, astigmatism. I had a perfect eyesight until that experience, but during my time in that workplace, and it was kind of a struggle every day, I started realizing that I was losing eyesight, and that's basically the story of how I started wearing glasses in front of a screen. Uh, however, this is just to remark the fact that burnout can have physical manifestations, and 
that's when your body begs you to stop whatever you're doing. Of course, these symptoms can take many forms. Uh, it's not necessarily eyesight. There's no list of potential manifestations. We have uh, reports of people fainting, collapsing, of muscular paralysis, muscle twitching, and, and so on and so forth. To be honest, I, I reconnected these physical manifestations to a potential burnout happening only recently, since at the time I didn't have the tools to recognize that something was wrong. Um, I was just accepting everything that happened there as normal. I I even started thinking that I was not good enough as a as an art viz artist because I was unable to cope with the pressure on that workplace. But in reality, what was happening there was not normal at all. It was like sprinting for a marathon each day. And everything kind of came back to me and I reconnected the dots when I started therapy and started researching what's burnout and how it develops. Understanding that burnout gradually develops over time and follows this 12 stages pattern made me much more aware of what I went through. And I think it is worthy to talk about this in, in this podcast. Keep also in mind that the stages of burnout might overlap, might not be present at all. In, in my case, for example, the physical manifestations were a bit earlier than usually are, but each phase and the length of each phase it's it's different from one individual to another one. However, the most frequent trigger of burnout is the compulsion to prove yourself, the desire of demonstrating to your peers and to yourself that you're not worthy, that you're doing an exceptional job. Um, and in order to meet these high expectations, the immediate reaction is to work harder. So in stage two, we buckle down and we take on more work. And this is very sneaky, you know, because most creatives love doing whatever they do. And that's what they would love to do in their own free time. Uh, this is a bit of a complicated issue. If what you're doing is something that fuels your passion and replenishes you, that's all good. Keep doing that. But the problem lies in not being able to switch off work anymore. And when you fail to tap into those resources that replenish you, then you have a problem. And you may start neglecting your own needs in stage three. Uh, all those occasions in which you start sacrificing social events, skipping lunch, or hours of sleep in order to squeeze more work time. And the worst thing is that our society normalizes this behavior. It makes it as a as a normal thing, to the point that this thing do not ring any alarm bell anymore. And these were the first three stages of burnout, which are, in my opinion, particularly important. Since at this point, we still have some control over our work-to-life balance, we can act. So here we can still reframe our response to stressful events, to stressful events related to work, of course. And maybe you can become good at spotting the patterns. But from stage four on is where things start getting a bit uh, a bit worse. That's where we start dismissing our problems, we displace the conflict. Even though we realize that something's not right, we might experience the first negative symptoms uh, like creeping anxiety or yeah, even physical symptoms of discomfort. Maybe the, the loss of eyesight was into this stage. But as it happened to me, at this stage, you're probably so focused on work that it is much easier to dismiss the symptoms. Going forward, on stage five is where a revision of values happens. And this is a bit the missed vacation situation that we touched on earlier. At this point, the priorities of your own value system start shifting. You start dismissing things that are non-productive. So free time, hobbies, community, relationships, they just become a waste of time in your eyes because you have to keep going, you have to keep producing. And then your job becomes your only standard to evaluate your self-worth. And then moving forward, you start just denying these problems. You tell yourself they're caused by the sheer amount of work that you have, by the pressure. And worst of it all, you begin developing an intolerance towards colleagues, towards people. You start seeing them in a negative light. And then in stage seven, the social interactions become even more scarce. You start withdrawing from social contact. You become cynical and you start losing hope probably. And you end up blaming yourself for all that's happening to you. And all of a sudden, in stage eight, all these changes start becoming obvious to people around you. Um, stage nine, we have feelings of depersonalization where you don't see yourself anymore as valuable and you become completely disconnected from basic needs such as leisure uh, and again, social connection. Worst of it all, you lose the ability to make plans, to have goals for yourself. You just live in a constant state of emergency and your perspective narrows to the present and you start feeling more and more empty inside at stage 10 and everything that you do becomes just a 
vicious cycle of overworking or being active just for the sake of filling that void. And then, of course, in stage 11 comes the depression with all the consequences and symptoms. We won't go through them in this brief overview of the, of the stages. And then in stage 12, you have the proper burnout syndrome, which, as we've seen, may go beyond the mental collapse and, and involve the body. Now, people might listen to this and think, well, these late stages are borderline cases. It's never going to happen in reality. But I can tell you, I've heard more stories than I ever wanted about colleagues and other 3D artists, so people in my field, that have shown physical manifestations of a, of a burnout going on. So this thing is real. It's very present in our industry. It's, uh, and if it's not you going through all this, it might be a colleague of yours easily. So please just be aware, pay attention to the signs. If, if you're afraid that someone close to you might be going through all this, just try to find some time to express your concerns, have a conversation. And if you think you're the one going through all this, well, if you think that, that's actually probably a good sign because it means that you're aware of the problem and that you might be ready to tackle that. You might be ready to reframe your attitude towards work. As for me, I went through many of these stages, uh, probably not down to the very bottom of the ladder, but this is something that I realized only much later, only through therapy, through personal research and self-reflection, uh, very long process, let's say one year, one year and a half. It took quite a while. So I was curious, um, what was the moment you started having these symptoms? And they, of course, in the beginning, they're very mild. They're not so, not so bad. And then at some point, of course, this situation gets worse. And at some point it gets so, so bad that you understand that something is off. And my question is, what was the moment for you when, in which you got aware that something is off and what uh, measurements you took to start going back to normal? Well, it's it's difficult to pinpoint a moment, but I clearly remember that during that period, I was, you know, almost physically unable to get up, get up from bed and sit down on my chair and work. I really had a almost nausea of working. So I just could not bear the idea of sitting down in front of my screen and start opening a 3D Studio Max file. So that was a big symptom. I'm not sure that's the exact one, but this is probably the biggest thing that I can remember. So when you start getting physically sick to the point that you get sick of doing something that you should be passionate about, that's when I told to myself, okay, this has gone too far. Probably there's something wrong. My biggest step, as I mentioned, was going into therapy finding a therapist. And that probably was the uh, single most important thing that I did for myself. And it's not something that you can change overnight. All of these things, all of these realizations and processes, they just don't happen overnight. And even if I went through therapy, I didn't realize and I didn't see improvements until very late. Uh, now that I see the retrospective, uh, I've improved a lot, I have to say, not to toot my own horn, but if I see myself hour late to work and also to incoming requests, um, it happened really recently. I, I had requests from a client of mine that if it was me one year and a half ago, two years ago, I would just go crazy and find hoops, trying all kinds of solutions to make it work, to make this project happen. But since I'm busy right now and I have a lot of things to do, I just, you know, I just turned down the job. I just told my client, sorry, I'm really busy this time and I'm not going to be able to accept. And I didn't think about that anymore. If it was me one year and a half ago, I will just hammer myself on the head for not accepting that project. And this is something that I really noticed that it's a big shift of mindset for me. Another important thing that I noticed that the big shift is the way that I relate with free time. As I told you before, work was a constant presence in my free time. Now, well, I wouldn't say it's not like that anymore because these things take a lot of time and you're still yourself. Even if you go through therapy, you don't change who you are. So work is going to be always a part where I am like, high admissions is what I'm made for, but I started to manage much better the way that work creeps into my free time to the point that it's not disturbing anymore. For example, I'm really passionate about video games. And when I was feeling down, I tried to play video games, but instead of enjoying what I was doing, I started thinking about work, about things that were wrong in my work, things that other people were doing better than me. And I was not enjoying the moment. And this was happening not just with video games, but this is a poignant example. Now I managed to, I managed to understand what's happening in my mind. I managed to anticipate those moments. Uh, also, my priorities 
realign in a certain sense so I don't fall into these traps anymore. And what were the methods or the, I don't know if they're exercises or conversations, what did the therapist for you that made you realize what was going on and where you you said you had also depression this is a topic that it's um, very dear to me somehow because i have uh, not I, something that probably i've never said but my mom has been going through depression for a few years and now she's finally better i guess she she also have taken some medicines in order to get better um so i know what it means depression and it's something that it's uh, you know i've lived in first person so was depression uh, there already when you started going through the therapy or is it something that pop up later through your process of getting better and yeah what was exactly what the your therapist made you realize and made you feel better um, I already had an idea about that. I had the idea that I was going through something like that because I also have a psychologist in the family. My mother's a psychologist. So I already had a certain degree of awareness on the topic of mental health. But yes, I had suspicions about that. So I started by, by asking Dr. Google. <laughs> uh, but this is something, obviously, I don't recommend. I strongly discourage you doing it. Leave the diagnosis to a professional. Although I'm that sure we all looked up these things on Google at least once. But in my case, uh, at least it pushed me to start therapy. Anyway, I saw myself into the symptoms of a persistent depressive disorder, which is less acute than major depressive disorder, but lingering to the point that people who suffer from that uh, may not get diagnosed for years. Uh, because it can easily be mistaken for a personality trait. So its symptoms are difficult to get discussed properly. Yes, I've also had few major depressive episodes, but my initial launch was, was eventually confirmed in therapy. But I don't think that happened after I left Netherlands, after I started the big picture. I think it was already there, honestly. It just exploded for, uh, for certain conditions, you know. Aside from that, I have a kind of a narcissistic personality. Uh, in my case, my narcissism went to clash with the expectations that I could not meet. That was the trigger for my depression. Uh, exercises, yes, uh, of course, exercises. This is not medical advice. Everybody goes through different things and you should not take me as an example. For me, something that has helped me a lot is trying to identify my inner critical voice. Also visualize it as an image and try to understand Who's talking in my mind? Is it the critical voice? Is it the inner child? Or is it the adult? So I come to realize that the inner critical voice was the preponderant, was the, the most loud of it all. And this is something that helped me a lot, understanding how the voices in my head talk, at which pace, which voice, which patterns. And another thing that helped me a lot is trying to, you know, do a proper reality check, a fact checking. Another thing that I really went through a lot and I, I still do sometimes is comparison. And this is something that all creatives as well do, uh, trying to compare themselves to other people, to other creatives. And I was comparing a lot to other artists, even though the comparison probably made no sense at all. Because probably the people that I compare to, when I was comparing to these people, I was comparing apple to oranges because these people came from a completely different situation than mine. Maybe these people had more education in Artvis, they had more time to build a client base, they had a team that backed them up, things that I didn't have. I didn't have a really strong team that taught me how to do Artvis. I'm basically self-taught. I didn't have people that could build a network for me. Honestly, I had problems building a network for myself because of how I made. So all of these things, you have to take them into account when you recollect your experiences. And that's something that I learned to do, even though it's difficult at times because you have to come up to terms with who you are and how you're made. But you know, when life gives you lemon, you make lemonade. You have to work with yourself and with what you are. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no room for improvement. Of course, there's always room for improvement. But if you're an introverted person like me, for example, you're always going to have more problems than other people in building from scratch a client relationship, in finding new clients. Uh, and there's something that you should not stigmatize yourself for that, because that's just how you're made. You should try to way to compensate your weaknesses 
maybe finding someone else that can help you, maybe finding a way that works for you of finding clients. For example, I came up with some small workshops for new clients. That's something that has worked for me to a certain extent. But try to find your own ways to make things work based on, on how authentic you feel when you do those things. What you said is very true because, for example, as you said, no matter what kind of creative work you do, even a podcast, I'm going to say about that, is that you somehow compare yourself or the first, it's sort of an instinctive reaction is to go check another podcast and um, check them and maybe see, okay, is this good? Is, is my podcast better? Or in your case, is my images better? And then, um, and then I don't know, put yourself in the competitive mode. I have to do better. I have to work harder. I have to achieve what they achieve. But the reality is that those people are in completely different contests. Uh, have, it's something completely different, as you said. So I think the best is to compete against yourself, you know, to try to be every day better and work on your weaknesses and compare yourself to the you of yesterday instead of to someone else of today. I think this is one of the points that um, there is also this, I think he's a psychology professor, Jordan Peterson. He has written a book called The 12 Rules for Life. And I think one is one is of those 12 rules is that one, but I'm not sure. So of course, to compare yourself to yourself yesterday and not to someone else who is not. Your here. story is different from someone else's story. So you cannot compare on that level. Unless it's someone that you lived with and you exactly know and you, you've lived exactly the same things, but it never happens and people are different. So for someone, it could be really easy to build friendships, build relationship and be outgoing and talk to people. For someone else, it could be the hardest thing in the world and it's okay. You cannot punish yourself for that. Yeah, and it's the same thing that I used to not be jealous of anyone is because you don't know, you know the surface of everything, but you don't know the background and you don't know also the price that those people have to pay in order to be in the position where they are. So yeah, it's something that you don't know. Uh, and I'm curious, um, nowadays on one side we have the um, if people are more into improving themselves, into chasing a goal, uh, they will get into probably this loophole information, this hustle culture that you have to work harder, uh, you have to be better. And we have figures like, I don't know, Elon Musk, for example, he does so much and everybody are like, Oh, for example, in the D2 talks, you mentioned in, in the ArcVis and the CG art uh, uh, field, it's Beeple that does an image every day since I don't know when. I think 13 years, something like that. Yeah. And in the same time, we have this culture where it's very important to show yourself always at your best through social media. And um, what was for you the motivation to come out with this story of yours is it because you wanted to try to avoid this to other people so that for example if somebody is in finding themselves in the same situation that they know that as i said i know you superficially through uh, your blog through your social media and everything seems fine and of course people that watch my social media will think everything is always fine but you don't show when you have a fight with your girlfriend or something has gone wrong at work so is it this your personal goal to maybe help other creatives, uh, young creatives or at any level to explain this, this also side of the profession? You know, there's a lot of reasons for you doing something. There's not just one reason. And for sure, there's the drive to help other people not to go through uh, what you've been through as well. That's, that also was the main motivation for building up the Control Z blog. All the things that I experienced when looking for a job, all the things that I taught people on how to look for a job in architecture, how to build their own portfolio, they come from that. But not just that. When you do something on social media, when you show yourself on social media, there's always going to be a, a narcissistic component of what you do, because you like to be on the spotlight, you like to build a name for yourself. There's also that in this. I won't deny that. I want to be a voice for this topic in the industry, and that's also why I'm doing that. Also, to be perfectly honest with you, I was also very disappointed by how some high-standing people in our industry tackled the topic in a way that was very lackluster or very confusing. 
Just to make an example, I've seen questionnaires that included questions on the topic of mental health in ARPIS. And these questions should have definitely been reviewed by a doctor, as not only they were confusing symptoms of mental ill-being and conditions, but they were self-administered, so the data collected doesn't really have a significant value. But going one step back, we have people that had the power to start a proper discussion, to raise their voice, and open panels that, that just dropped the topic. Yes, it might be that people don't want to get involved yet into this kind of discussions, but the way that these people talk about this issue has clearly shown a lack of real commitment, in my opinion. Um, at a certain point in time, around 2018, if I'm not mistaken, there was a lot of highlighting how preserving the mental health of Arvis artists should have been a priority, but apart from a few statements here and there, the thing just stopped. So what I tried to do was trying to tackle this topic in a more, I would say, research back way. Help people not to go through these things, try to change a bit what we're doing, how we're doing it, and also, yes, being a voice for that, being an advocate for that, especially in the ARPVC industry. And I was a bit sad in seeing that the D2 conferences didn't reach as many people as I hoped, but I can also understand that because this is a topic that you don't want to hear about. Our industry is very, yes, it's uh, kind of a young industry, but we're going towards a maturity. Uh, and I think it's, it's really necessary to start talking about these things right now. And someone has to start doing that uh, in a proper way trying to open round tables, trying to talk to other people. I mean, you cannot imagine how many people wrote me after the, after the speech at the T2 that told me yeah, it's a really important topic. Thanks for talking about that. Uh, I've been through that. Honestly, I know of a lot of people that went through that in our industry and it really tells that we should be mindful of that. I agree with you. And I think this is a very important thing that you're doing, as you said, this was also some of the motivation for me to do my podcast and to call it the Creative Insider is to, you know, in all the media or events that are creative industry related, you go through conferences, speeches, articles, books that show you the end product and how nice it is and how good it is. And nobody asks how did you do it? What was the cost of it? What was the work that you put in it? And actually to mention somebody that's really industry related with you, I have had also Andras from Brick Visual on my podcast and we were talking and he explained to me the immense amount of work that he has done from the beginning of his office to now where they have the academy they do some i think some little softwares for argus artists they're doing something with uh, real estate they, he does so much and in my last question I was like okay andres everything's nice uh, everything sounds great and you seem to be very successful but what was the amount of work you needed to put in and what was the cost of all of it and he was like he changed completely his expression and now i'm talking he was like yeah, it was so much work and I have now some health related issues out of this amount of work. So this is why I think it's always important to keep an eye on the priorities and, and the goals of your all over life, not only of your work life, but of, of the all aspects of your life. And um, maybe to wrap it up a little bit as a final conclusion to end on a positive note because in the end of the day your story it's the classic story where we have the hero he encounters a difficulty and now he's going back up the ladder what were some practices or learnings uh, or mindsets that now differentiate you from the one and a half years ago Federico? Some of these things we already went through but if I were to make a difference between where I am today and what I was one and a half ago, two years ago, there's a few things. One of them is probably is the relationship that I have with social media. For me, social media is a danger zone, for example, and I'm sure it is for many, many creative people out there. Uh, you know, I use social media a lot for my work. My projects are all based on social media and on education through social media. So it's a, it's, a, it's a weird relationship, the one that I have with social media. I use them for my work, but I don't like to use them as a user. I was doing that before, but I don't go through my own feed anymore. I don't follow that much anymore. The, even other artists, artists, not because I don't have esteem of them, because I know there's a lot of talented people out there, but it just doesn't work for me. For me, 
it is a danger zone and I'm led to comparison. Even though I still scroll through my own, but I'm not so focused anymore on comparison. Maybe because I learned that all these people have different stories. Uh, but in general, I've became more aware of how I interact and react to content. And I've also became more aware of how social media are engineered. You know, notifications, likes, interactions, these things are addictive. It's difficult to fight back because they're literally studied to make you great for more. They exploit release of dopamine in your brain, so the pressure to get this feedback and these interactions is a real thing. But I've also become more detached from numbers by just taking a deeper look at the facts. Um, I've realized that the number of people that see my work and in general creative people's work on social media is influenced by factors that have nothing to do with the quality of my work. Uh, unless you're a social media expert, you have little control on these factors. There's hashtags, if we're talking about Instagram, of course, how much you interact with other users on the platform, and I interact very little on the platform. How uh, often you post what kind of content is favored by the algorithm in that moment. So. As you can see, social media feedback can become a big stress factor, but I became more aware and I've started fighting back. Another thing that has changed a lot is that um, although I'm still a perfectionist and I always be a perfectionist, I'm allowing myself to suck a little bit. Not everything has to be perfect. Even in my social media activity, I, I maintain a certain degree of uh, imperfections of what I do. Also my planning as well, and no, I don't have a such a strict planning anymore. I used to have a super tight planning of things to post for the various media outlets that I have. I don't do that anymore, uh, and I'm not punishing myself for that as I was doing before. Another important thing that is delegating something that I really was I really didn't know how to do, and now I still have to learn about. Delegation is the key to every successful business. There can be no business without delegation. And I'm still learning that, even though I'm a, a solo artist, I'm delegating more and more of my work to other people. Things that I probably, well, that I would have done by myself two years ago. Now I just try to outsource them to carve out free time. For example, I hate modeling stuff. So if there's possible, I just outsource modeling elsewhere. I just want to focus on lighting and composition of an image. Uh, but it's really useful also for other projects. For example, Ctrl-C blog. There's a person that helps me now, which is Luca. I realized that he's an immense help for the blog and not just for the blog, also for me as a person, because it's really complementary to who I am. So this is another important lesson. You need to find someone who's complementing your skills. Another important thing that I mentioned before, and it's really important to, to highlight, is the is learning to say no. Uh, I told you before, I had to turn down a lot of projects in 2021. And honestly, I have no regrets. If it was me two years ago, I would just punish myself for not accepting all of this job. But now, this is probably the biggest change that I went through. Um, you see, you cannot say yes to all incoming projects if you're a creative. First of all, it might happen that you have no capacity to take on these projects or no energy especially if you have no team that can back you up, no fixed team, just like me. And if you take projects anyway in these situations, 100% you're going to set yourself up for failure and you will deliver a poor service to a client. And if you want to keep a stable relationship with a client, this is something that you should avoid at all costs. And to go back on the relationship aspect, the second reason to turn down projects is that you might not be a fit for a client that comes to you. And that's what happens when your expectations and the way you have structured your workflow and your positioning do not align with what a client is asking for. And honestly, I think that forcing yourself to work for a client that uh, doesn't agree or respect or doesn't align with your workflow or with your expertise is probably one of the worst things that you can do for your own mental health in the long run. And even if you try your best at trying to educate this client, you might have to just let go at a certain point. And another important thing is that you have to understand that just standing your ground and refusing conditions that might not work for you uh, or for the kind of creative that you want to be uh, doesn't tell anything negative about you. You're just not aligned with your client. You might have different needs, then you're better off parting ways. You know, as relationships change, even work relationships change, and at a certain point in time, you might have to say goodbye to a client. You might have to let them go. And 
this is a bit like letting go a loved one for any reason. You have second thoughts, you have comebacks, and it's very difficult to keep the right path. And there's one last thing that I want to tell artists, uh, two things actually to artists and creatives in general, is that your health and your creative spark are always more important than the short-term income or short-term success or the amount of work that you take. Uh, and if you turn down a project today, it doesn't mean that you're not going to get projects tomorrow or in the future. Uh, if you want to take a turn from finance, your energy and your creativity are part of your human capital, which is your current abilities plus all your future potential. And you have to preserve and cultivate this capital so you cannot allow yourself to uh, or your health suffer from work. And one last thing, which is really important to me, uh, really important to young artists and creatives is that you need to understand that you have to work away if you need to. I walked away from a bad workplace and probably this is one of the best things that I did in my life. Uh, in creative industries, there's a lot of companies that have a poor work-to-life balance or find convenient to maintain a toxic work culture. These situations are out there. They do exist. And this is important to tell to young artists because, you know, young artists entering the field with all this pressure and expectation and they're more vulnerable to peer pressure. They're more vulnerable and they end up accepting work conditions that are not okay. Just for the sake of, you know, building a resume and portfolio to make a name for themselves, this is probably okay at the beginning of a career, but it's not sustainable in the long run. But this is important. If you are a young artist working for the first time for a studio, you'll have probably no previous benchmark in evaluating the health of a work culture. So if you end up working for a company that has a poor work culture or a toxic work culture, you will become more inclined to accept these poor work conditions because in your head, in your world, that's the way things should be. There's no other way because you don't know any other way to work. And this may have a lasting impact on the way you approach projects, the way that you see yourself, because without knowing other options, you will be inclined to believe that you're not good enough because you cannot sustain the stress. But in reality, it is just that you've learned a toxic way of handling work. So you should not be afraid to walk away and make the right choice for the kind of person you are. If you're looking for a healthy work-to-life balance, and I think it should be the priority, especially in these days, just walk away from companies that have a poor work culture. Survey the field when interview with a company, spot the red flags, speak with someone from the company that you're interviewing with, try to get some insider information to avoid these situations. But in general, to studio owners, just try to keep an eye and look out on the health of your employees, because in these professions, we cannot be treated as cogs in the wheel and uh, allow people to recharge batteries and don't use over time as a standard way to complete projects because your artists will suffer from that you will lose artists and your business will just fail that's something that i can agree with and uh, i can relate to that and i want to say that if for example the burnout is related to a job and not to you as for example uh work coming in and you're rejecting it also for the people who are finding themselves on a job that's not the right uh workplace for them there is another job like some people also get into this rut that they think oh what i'm gonna do i'm not gonna find another job or you always gonna find another job as you always gonna find another uh, gig as an archivist artist for the simple fact that there's always a need some company will need an image and some company will need a new co-worker in their organizations because there is a job that needs to be done and they need a person. So no matter how wrong things can go, you always go forward. This is what I have learned through my personal experiences because I think, as I said, I've been lucky enough that I work with the right people, but I think that it's just a matter of luck and what happened to you or what happened to other people can happen to anyone else. And I think it's great that you have decided to, to open up and to help other people. As a conclusive thing, maybe for the people who have listened to this conversation and maybe they find themselves in a situation like this, but still haven't taken any actions. Um, I'm just, just thinking if it's something that you might know or might suggest. Do you know some or have you read some books on the topic or some articles or some some sources that can be uh, initial, I don't know, self-help approach or even 
I don't know, an education for someone that has a dear one that it's in this situation. Maybe, I don't know, some book or some, some media or some piece of information that you might suggest. I can suggest a couple of references, a couple of scientific articles and some interesting talks, at least one. But I would suggest people to be careful and not rely too much on self-help books. Self-help is interesting, can make you aware, but in these situations, you should rely on the help of a professional. Self-help should not be a replacement for therapy. That said, for my D2 talk, I referenced a really interesting speech, a really interesting talk by Hamza Khan at TED Talks that is called The Burnout Gamble, that highlights the 12 stages of burnout and his experience with burnout. I can also suggest you a few articles, one in particular, one installment from the Scientific American from June 2006, actually, so it's an article from almost 10 years ago, more than 10 years ago, that is called The Science of Burnout, but in general, Scientific American has a few interesting articles on the subject of burnout. And of course, if you want to listen to something that is more ARCVIS-centric, you can just listen to my D2 2021 talk that I held on day four. You can still find it on YouTube by typing D2 Online 2021 day four. I think the most valuable thing, the first important step is to take a step. That's why I'm so reluctant in giving references, just because you can just look it up. Yes, you can do a lot of research on the topic, but if you feel like you're going through this time of your life, the best thing that you can do is to talk to someone that is a professional and that can help you and can lead you through a path, a path that is tailored on who you are. Articles and especially books are not something that I would recommend when dealing with burnout situations. That's something that you can use for your education on the topic, of course, but if you're going through that, I wouldn't rely so much on self-help and, and, and on books, honestly. I just rely on the help of a professional. I think this is the best, um, the best solution. Well, I think we have covered this conversation in a, in a, in a great way. I want to thank you personally for opening up about this topic. I think it's very important that uh, more and more creatives open up of topics that are not directly profession related, but also like yours. And um, it's a great, a great thing that you're doing. And from my side, I cannot thank you enough. And uh, it was great talking to you again on on a podcast. Well, thank you, Jordi. I just hope more people start talking about this more openly in uh, in our industry, but not just in our industry. Um, my general feeling is that we are a bit behind when it comes to mental health in architecture and everything that revolves around architecture. Other industries have started talking about this architecture, not so much yet, but we're getting there. Well, architecture is actually getting there. ArcVis is still lagging behind, but it's definitely something that we have to take into account because ArcVis is growing by the day. And the industry is getting wider and wider and will encompass much, much more in the future. So it's important to get into that with the right mindset and the right structures. If anyone else needs further information or have further questions, the best way is to just get in touch with you through the channels that you are available on. And, and yeah, thank you very much for this very nice conversation. Always nice talking to you. Thank you for the space. Thank you. Bye bye. bye. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed, please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting app. If you like this episode, help us growing and improving the show by rating and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. Got a question or is there something you'd like me to cover in a future episode? Write me an email at podcast at bigpicturevisual.com. Thank you again for listening and see you next time.